New York Cyber Week is coming up, and it is a festival that brings together thousands of the most influential cybersecurity leaders to exchange big ideas and collaborate to solve the most critical cyber challenges. Your complimentary week-long pass unlocks access to numerous conferences, parties, hackathons, roundtables, and other events. Sign up as an individual, bring your team, or host your own event. Community events are the heart and soul of New York Cyber Week, and this is your chance to meet the top leaders in the cyber field, sharpen your skill set, and expand your professional network. Work. Sign up for as many events as you can and get the most out of this year's festival. It will take place September 16th through the 20th. So for more information, check out nycyberweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for August 1st. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap of InfoSec News. We have our biggest breach of the year. We will discuss every angle of the (laughs) Capital One breach, the why, the who, and all of the associated uh uh-ohs attached to the incident. And in our interview, we'll talk with Brian Nesmith of Arctic Wolf Networks. Arctic Wolf sells a sock-as-a-service product to small and medium businesses. He tells us how his customers are more protected than ever before. But first, let's just get to all this Capital One stuff. I've been talking about it all week, so let's go deeper. So to review, financial giant Capital One announced a large data breach on Monday, saying that one person accessed personal information of approximately 100 million people in the U.S. and 6 million people in Canada who had applied for or are already current users of the company's credit cards. The FBI arrested a woman in Washington state who is suspected of infiltrating the company to obtain the information. Paige A. Thompson was arrested Monday and appeared in federal court in Seattle. According to the FBI, a misconfigured firewall allowed Thompson to access a list of more than 700 folders that contained the data. Sometime shortly thereafter, Thompson allegedly posted on GitHub that she was in possession of the data. The company was made aware of the breach on July 17th when someone emailed Capital One via their security disclosure email contact and informed it the data was publicly posted on GitHub. Greg, what's the initial takeaway? That... It doesn't matter how forward-thinking you are technology-wise because, look, Capital One is in the D.C. area. The headquarters are in the D.C. area. You probably know this uh, as well as anybody else. Capital One likes to put forth that they are a technology-centric company. And being a technology-centric company, especially on the banking side, means that you're pretty security-focused as well. And for all of the reputation that they have on being technology-focused and security-focused, it shows that you can be good at these things and still be hacked. Nobody is immune from being hacked. The stories that we've seen, you know, whether it's Equifax, any one of a government agency that has uh, an issue, uh, Sony, Target, Home Depot, whatever, pick your breach. There has always seemed to have been some sort of negligence that has gone into it, whether there's an old patch that didn't get put into a system, somebody didn't configure an S3 bucket outside of the default settings and dumped a bunch of information out to the public internet, pick your flaw, there's always been some sort of negligence there. This doesn't seem to have the same low bar of negligence that we've seen in other breaches. What Paige Thompson did, Paige Thompson, we'll get into a little bit later, um, was uh, an Amazon Web Services employee in Seattle. So she saw 
how all the sausage was made. She knew how to get around the, the, the keys to the kingdom. So she knew what she was doing. Well, that's the question. So was she able to, because of her job at AWS, would she know that firewall was misconfigured? Or would she have had to put some work into it? I I think she would have had to put some work into it. But once she saw that it was misconfigured, she she had the technical aptitude to do what she did, allegedly. Right. Um, Well. But from the company's standpoint is you could be the best guarded company in the world and the best guarded company in the world isn't necessarily going to be 100% secure. Sure. You might be 99.9% secure and a hacker just happens to find that 0.1% and exploit it and then, you know, all of your records are out there. I mean, don't get me wrong. Capital One did some really weird things like the way they were storing this data, like the, all of this data being stored in an S3 bucket. It's weird on its own. Mm-hmm. But they really showed like what goes into like post-breach actions that can really save you when it comes to further litigation or cyber insurance or anything like that. It's particularly around the detail that Paige Thompson put this information on GitHub and somebody found that information and turned around and emailed Capital One via their vulnerability disclosure email on July 17th. That was two weeks ago. Two weeks ago to go from initial notification that something is wrong to we found that person, that person has been arrested, and we have found that data, pinpointed that data, and it looks like that data hasn't been put forth on on the open internet anywhere. That's Yes, that is extraordinary. This is not Equifax. This is not Sony. This is not some like Uber. This is not some piece of... Uh, extreme corporate corporate negligence here where you know we're all you know just inundated with free identity theft management for the the rest of our lives and we just have to hope that we aren't the unlucky ones where our identities are picked by some criminal and suddenly we're trying to fight off some identity fraud that i don't think that's going to be the case here with that at all. So yeah, is it bad that 100 million records were pulled out of an S3 bucket? Yeah, I'm sure the Capital One would say that. And you kind of get that tone once you read the, um, the the press release that they put out. But at the same time, this could have been so much worse and it just wasn't. So let, let's talk about the actual uh, culprit behind this. Paige Thompson is a 33-year-old software engineer who worked for Amazon Web Services and allegedly bragged about taking this data from Capital One's storage to friends on Slack and then said some more on a public GitHub account that displayed her full name. Uh, When another GitHub user noticed Thompson's claims, they emailed Capital One and it wasn't long before the Bureau was involved. She also appeared to have active social media accounts. She was posting on Twitter under the name Erratic, and there were many of the posts that talked about InfoSec news, cats, and life around Washington State where Thomas was later arrested. And so, Jen, you know, probably not smart to go online bragging that you just pulled 100 million records from the top 10 bank in the U.S. I mean, I'm at a complete loss for why you would think this was going to go in any other direction if you brag about it online. Someone's going to report it. Someone's going to notice it. And a lot of people have come out that are looking at the situation and have said that this wasn't somebody that was just negligent in their own right or was stupid. It appeared that 
Thompson had some mental health issues. Got it. And it there was a nihilistic streak that you know was kind of pervasive throughout all of her online communications. And you know you can read a number of stories. There have been a number of of publications. Bloomberg comes to mind. Like actually went out to Seattle and talked to her friends and and talked to people that knew her, and they all said that. Look, this looks like somebody that was at the end of their wits when it, when it, you, you talk about mental health, and there was a screw it, we're gonna, I'm gonna burn this all down just because I can, type of ordeal. I, and I'm sure there's other people like that out there. So you've mentioned um, that she works at, at AWS um, a couple times, and other than um, that, sort of proving that she's very smart, um, is there anything else there around AWS? Um, yeah, there, you mean in terms of like security or right, whether right. they're Was she able? Did she access it via AWS? Well, or? okay, so you know, you bring up a good point, and this is something that has been uh, slowly percolating throughout the week. Is that the nobody knows for sure yet the, the full technical details of how she pulled this off? But there have been people that believe that she was able to pull this off through something called server side request. Forgery. I do not have the technical acumen to, to go sure. uh, deep, deep into that. But if you want to check it out, there are, you know, if you're a listener and you want to dive into it more, if you Google SFRF, server-side request forgery, you, I mean, you'll be filled with um, information to check it out further. There might, and I want to be very, very careful here because it's not definitive at all, might be some sort of vulnerability with the way that firewalls and either firewalls or identity and access management controls are set up in AWS where it gives the ability to complete these server-side request forgeries. There are people looking into that right now. I've been talking to some of them over the course of the week. Again, I, I huge caveat there in that it's being examined. There is nothing definite okay. there. But from the details that have been put forth in the complaint and some of the other, other coverage that has been out there, there are people that are looking into whether a server-side request forgery was a way that all of this was done. Now, hypothetically, let's say that that turns out to be true. Amazon would issue a patch probably pretty easily and we would go about our day. This is in no way indicative of like a glaring flaw in the cloud that renders all of the work that and all of the business innovation that we've seen dumped into the cloud somehow, you know, render it useless and now we're all insecure because of it. It's look, the cloud is just another computer somewhere. Computers have flaws. I mean, it's why we have this podcast. So this is not a um, a bad hire by AWS. This is this is simply someone who just happened to also work at AWS who became allegedly mentally ill and went hacking on her own right. doing something else. Right. And let's Nothing be clear. She, she did not work at AWS during the time of this because she was pulling this information out earlier this year in March. Got it. I think okay. she hasn't worked at AWS since 2016. So Got it. It's, okay. it. it's been a little bit. However, I mean, the the, the, the core of S3 buckets and and – Amazon's IAM procedures, they've been there before she was even hired there. So there's definitely a window where she could have learned and probably did know how to um, 
you know, work within this and, and, and bounce around technically. I mean, I would imagine that's how you get hired Got at it. AWS, showing extreme techni- technical acumen when it comes to setting up all of this enterprise architecture inside Amazon's cloud. You're going to help Amazon build its huge business. Um, but yeah, to, to back up and sort of uh, put a bow on that, um, yeah, I don't think that even if it comes to light that there is some sort of vulnerability that has not been uh, publicly disseminated in AWS's cloud, that doesn't necessarily mean that we, we can throw the cloud out and everybody goes back to having a data center in their office somewhere. Got it. Okay. Yeah, makes more sense. So there's at least one part of the financial sector where hackers are good for business. Direct cyber insurance premiums grew to $2 billion last year, up 26% since 2015, according to figures published July 25th by Moody's Investor Services. The figure represents less than 1% of premium insurance revenue in the U.S., but it's clear the increasing claims over the past three years are driven largely by concerns about data breaches, distributed denial of service attacks, and perhaps most notably ransomware. The problem, despite all the demand, is that some insurers are now rethinking whether it's in their best interest to keep offering the plan that helps clients recover from devastating cyber attacks. Greg, why are we rethinking things? So I think the insurers are rethinking things because it's very, very hard to write predictive models for insurance plans when so many random things can go wrong Mm -hmm. for a cyber attack. I mean, cyber attack... Are, are not these events that just sort of happen the same way that like hurricanes or floods or car accidents happen. A lot of this is either based on, like we were saying, either negligence or nation states, you know, carrying out espionage programs or, you know, all sorts of, of different things. So it's very, very hard to write actuarial tables when something like a cyber attack is so random. Right. And I was actually, you know, the story came, we've been working on this story for a while, but I was having these conversations at RSA where people were telling me that the insurers themselves were, were trying to back out of it. And the real people making the money in the insurance business when it comes to cybersecurity were the reinsurers. Basically, the insurance policies taken out against the insurance policies for cybersecurity breaches. Um, so you have these companies like Marsh and McClanahan. I, I'm not sure that I pronounced that right. But Marsh, uh, Munich RE, like all of these companies that are insuring the insurers. And they're the ones that are making all of the money because they're the ones that have to insure the actual insurers for when everything gets paid out. So um, it's, it's a really hard thing to nail down and it's something they're going to have to figure out because I feel like more and more you're going to see companies just move to cyber insurance because the CEOs are going to go, this is easier than trying to understand everything that goes on IT-wise. Just let, let's cut a check, let's buy this, and then if we get a breach, we can just be covered. I mean, it's exactly what happened with Capital One. Yep. In their press release, they said, this is going to cost us 100 to $150 million, but we have a cyber insurance plan that covers up covers us up to $400 million. We're going to pay a $10 million deductible and we're going to move on. And it's why ransomware is getting paid. Right. Because insurance covers it. Right. Exactly. The the more and more these insurers um, realize that people are going to start coming to them, they're going to have to worry about these models and, Mm -hmm. and, and figure it out. And they aren't doing a really, really good job of that right now. Why fix something internally when you can just buy insurance? 
So the Department of Homeland Security released an advisory on an insecure networking standard used in the aviation sector that could allow a hacker with access to a small plane to falsify flight data. DHS amplified research from cybersecurity company Rapid7 highlighting how aviation is lagging behind automotive and other sectors in securing the historically insecure standard known as CAN bus. If the assumption is that hackers won't have physical access to airplanes, the increased perceived physical security of aircraft may be paradoxically making them more vulnerable to cyber attack, not less, according to Rapid7's Patrick Kiley, who wrote a research paper that was released earlier this week. This is interesting because for the first time this year, the DEF CON Hacking Conference will have a village dedicated to aviation security. So Jen, are you going to check that village out? Absolutely. Are they actually going to have a plane you can hack? They are not. I don't oh. think so. So, you know, it's funny that you bring that up because when we initially heard about plans for this earlier mm-hmm. this year, that was our first question. They tried. I know the organizers tried, but they tried for like a big plane. Like we're talking like a 737 or something uh, like that. Like I look mean, at what happened a with... a whole fleet of... Yeah, planes grounded, right? right. You can yeah. Pack into so those. no, but it, it, you know, it's it's funny that you bring that up because I think that they did try to get one of the seven thirty seven Maxes that have been you know parked on the runway somewhere, and Boeing was like, yeah, yeah no, no, we we've had uh, enough. Thank you, uh, uh, but no thanks. Um, I know that they they tried they they tried to get some type of plane that was like a a commercial aviation jet yeah. not anything that was like a small plane like a Cessna or 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 like a jet that was like a G4 or a G5 or something like that um but that will be a very fun village to It'll check be a out cool village, I, for sure. I am eager to see what hardware they did manage to get their hands on mm-hmm. and it's very very clear that there are a bunch of researchers like Rapid7 that want to dig into this and and figure it out yeah those are always fun So normally we'd keep this for the business segment, but let's talk about it now. President Donald Trump's former Homeland Security Advisor and Cybersecurity Chief Tom Bossard has joined the management team of Trinity Cyber. The startup, based in Bowie, Maryland, works to block cyber attacks outside of the network perimeters. Bossard described the company's work as active threat intelligence to Wired. Trinity also boasted former intelligence community talent, including CEO Steve Ryan, who most recently served as Deputy Director of the NSA's Threat Operations Center. Trinity Cyber jointly announced Monday it has raised $23 million in funding from Intel. Greg, can you explain um, active threat interference to me? Yeah, so active threat interference, you know, it's funny. You asked me to explain it to you. I'm not sure that I can yeah. because, uh, you know, it was really interesting. This came out on Monday and there was a big Wired article uh, because it's uh, Tom Bossert's attached sure. to it. And there are a lot of details. Uh, there actually aren't a lot of details. There's a lot of noise around this active threat interference. And to me, it sounds a lot like hacking back. So the article has some mention of this active threat interference. And it sounds like hacking back, but... In the article, Ryan and Bossert press back and go, no, we don't sit inside a company's perimeter. We are actually outside the perimeter. And what we do is sort of hack the hackers and by showing them that their things aren't working. And we just want the hackers to say, oh, okay, this isn't working. We're going to move on to the next target, which I had tweeted something about it, which just to me, let me pull up my 
tweet because my mind has been so what burned does hack on the hackers on, mean? How is that yeah, really I, different I don't, from what? I, that just hacking sounds back. like hack back to me. Yeah, um, sounds the same. But at the same time, they said that oh, we just want hackers to you know move on to the next target and. Ultimately, isn't that the goal of every cybersecurity company? Like having hackers say, oh, this attack didn't work. Isn't that the point of every cybersecurity company on the face of the planet? Whether it is you guard against phishing, you guard against ransomware, you guard against oil and and gas hacking, you guard against having a car taken over, you, you, you you guard against anything, you're essentially trying to make hackers go, oh, that didn't work. So... What are we talking about here? Like, hey, if you're a new cybersecurity company on the block and, and this is what you're doing, that's great. Like, I, I go figure it out along with everybody else. But this just sounds like hacking back in the name of saving the trouble of not attaching the companies to a hackback. Yeah, but I guess if it if it was truly a hackback, would their quote have been something more like, "We want to stop." Um, the hackers versus have them move on to something else? Like, wouldn't the goal be to figure out how to stop them versus just have them move on to someone else's company to play with? Uh, I, I think they're thinking that maybe it's both. I don't know, because look, Bossert used some pretty, I don't want to say graphic, but he he told Wired that you know he wants this company and 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 more companies to get their hands around the necks of hackers that cost all these companies okay, billions so, of dollars. So they're which, hacking back, great. Yes. <laughs> I mean, look, it's it's an aggressive stance and I it just goes back to this whole hacking back conversation where it's look, I want these hackers to suffer too. Like they're criminals, they're they're stealing IP, they're 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 criminals. I mean, it's criminals the should to do be punished. It, not- but companies. yes, let's let's figure out a way to, that doesn't escalate it to the point where it becomes like a full fledged diplomatic incident. Right. Like yeah. No, but interesting, and, and I'm sure this company will get even more attention as it goes by, just by given who's joining the management team. So we found out on Friday that Marcus Hutchins, aka Malware Tech, will not serve jail time for writing a banking trojan during his time as a black hat hacker. Hutchins, who is a 25 year old hacker and is widely known as being the person who stopped the spread of WannaCry, was given one year of supervised release in addition to his time served. Hutchins faced up to 10 years in prison, and the ruling is a rare show of leniency by a judge for a young hacker, underscoring the extent to which Hutchins has become a positive force in the cybersecurity community. Jen, you cool with this sentence? I actually am. You know, I think he you know, certainly did something bad, but I think he's sort of proved himself to be on the other side by helping the WannaCry um, incident. And, um, you know, certainly is a really a role model, I think, for other young hackers who maybe started out in the wrong side. Right. I'm actually surprised that this is how everything panned out. And Yeah, I thought uh, they would go a little bit stronger. Yeah, well... Yeah, I figure just because of how this all played out to begin with that they were trying to, you know, go after his jugular on on this. But I'm glad that the court realized that malware tech has seemingly changed his ways. The the WannaCry thing was just a huge help to the world yeah. in general. So there's clearly some morality and, and some good character there and if you pay attention to any of these court cases 
involving hackers, good character always comes up. So I'm glad that the the courts sort of recognized that and went, okay, uh, enough's enough. Yeah, you're you're free to go. So, and you know, it looks like that he's going to go back to Britain and still work for the company that he was working for uh, during the WannaCry thing, and life will just continue on. So good. So Cisco has agreed to pay $8.6 million to settle allegations and knowingly sold video surveillance equipment with security vulnerabilities to the federal, state, and local government agencies, according to court records unsealed on Wednesday. A whistleblower first informed Cisco in 2008 that a bug in its surveillance software could have enabled hackers to monitor video footage, delete footage, and turn on or disable the systems. Government entities, including the U.S. Secret Service, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and the New York Police Department had purchased the software. Cisco's settlement appears to be the first whistleblower resolution of the False Claims Act, which prohibits defrauding the government regarding cybersecurity issues. So, Greg, this seems like a small amount of money to pay for making the government less secure. Yeah, I'm really surprised that the fine isn't higher because I, I feel like that's a rounding error for Cisco. I mean, they're, they're a massive, massive company. For sure, yeah. And, $8.6 million for selling vulnerable equipment to the government, even though that you know that it's vulnerable, that just, I don't know. It seems maybe like the it case could be higher. That strong? I, yeah, maybe. I don't know. But at the same time, we also did a story where the government keeps buying this insecure stuff, even though they know it's insecure too. So maybe that factored into it a little bit. Uh, there was a really interesting story on FedScoop this week where. Like there are insecure Lexmark printers and just other networking equipment, other commodity stuff that has been poked and prodded. And there's plenty of CVE numbers out there on how this stuff isn't secure. And yet the government buys it and puts it in in their buildings, in their networks. That's a good question. (laughs) It just... It's just a matter of these companies n- not being fully truthful with the people that are buying these products, and then they make their way onto the systems anyway. I mean, it takes two. Like the government should be aw- the government should be aware of all these vulnerabilities as well. But it goes to show that the procurement officers at these co- at these companies, at these organizations, and at these agencies just don't have the cybersecurity know-how that's needed when it comes to buying these products. I mean, you say it takes two, but in reality, it, it it's really the job of the, the government to procure the right things, not the job of Cisco to be like, no, guys, this isn't that secure. Like, they're, they're, Cisco's job is to sell things. The government's job right. is to buy the right things right. that were protected. Right. And I've also heard of instances where the government completely is aware of vulnerabilities in certain pieces of tech and they buy it anyway because that's what they want buying the huawei i say that wrong every time (laughs) there's there's huawei stuff huawei thank you and 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 they know it right right. i mean it was banned but some people are allowed to buy it anyway well i'm even going further than that and and saying i don't want to i'm not going to put the company on blast but a, a hardware maker of some emerging tech well, let's put it that way. <laughs> that that is banned from the military. I know for a fact is still being bought by the military, and they don't care. Like they Apparently, don't care because it works. It right. works, and they're happy that it works, and they're they're uh, happy to just um, bring it in anyway, and and they'll deal with the consequences 
later. They just want their stuff. They want it now and they want it to work. So, yeah, um, yeah, maybe I've come full circle there in that it is uh, on on the government. Yeah, more. I think you have. So in the business side of things, we're starting to see the money flow again Woo-hoo. after uh, a couple uh, dry weeks. Um, some smaller rounds this week, too. Uh, New Knowledge, an Austin-based company, they detect, monitor, and mitigate social media manipulation. They earned a $3 million funding round from Build Group and Lux Capital. Uh, Jamf, I, I'm, I, this is one of the weirder company names that I've seen. J-A-M-F, Jamf. I'm sorry, guys, if I uh, pronounce your company's name wrong, but they acquired Digitus Security, a Mac OS security provider. Digitus Security is run by Patrick Wardell. He is uh, one of the preeminent Mac security researchers out there. So good for Patrick on the sale of his company. The financial terms of that one were not disclosed, however. Uh, Prevalian, a risk discovery, evaluation, and mitigation company based in Fulton, Maryland, raised $10 million in a Series A funding from Allegis Cyber and was joined by investors including Datatribe. Altitude Networks, a San Francisco-based cloud collaboration security platform, raised $9 million in a Series A. Thelesis Ventures, butchering it, sorry, led the round and was joined by investors including Slack Fund, Accomplice, and Alex Samos. And DataGrail, a San Francisco-based privacy platform designed to help companies comply with privacy regulations, raised $5 million in funding. Cloud Apps Capital led the round. Jen, a lot of companies getting a lot of funding that's right in your wheelhouse. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, probably the most interesting thing here is going to be Pavilion um, in our backyard in Fulton, Maryland, um, mainly just because of the investors, right? Allegis Cyber, um, really, really smart group of investors. Um, and, of course, Data Tribe's involved, so... Um, which kind of tells me it's spun out of somehow the NSA. Uh, yes. Yeah. And it's funny that you say that because as I was looking into the company, they do, they have some NSA and, and CIA talent uh, in their uh, leadership portfolio, but I can't figure out what the company does. Like okay. the, the risk discovery, evaluation and mitigation. Okay. That, that, that's, that's fine. But if you, Go on their website. Like, I'm not exactly sure how that works. Like, what are we talking about? Like, they said they have ways to basically detect in real time when you are compromised, which I I, I literally just made that up off the fly just based on what I saw on the website. But if you go on the website, it's very, very shadowy and black and white and, and gray and very nondescript so i'm that makes me want to dig into them a little bit more so i don't know if you know anything about them but i'm very very intrigued by what it is i I mean look you know data tribe really specializes in um in people spinning companies out of the fort so it's probably good tech Cool. And it's probably really interesting. You probably want to look at it again, and I'm sure we can have them on the show. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. But in the meantime, we are going to go to our interview with Brian Neesmith from Arctic Wolf. We talked to Brian during the Gardner Conference a couple weeks ago, and Brian talks all about what it's like to have a sock as a service if you are a small and medium business. Check it out. Okay, joining us now is Brian Nesmith, the president and CEO of Arctic Wolf Networks. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you. So 
Brian, more and more companies moving to the cloud, which is helpful for small and medium businesses, and yet we see data exposures all the time when they try to link up to the cloud, among other security issues. So uh, that's only like one spoke of the wheel when we're coming on top of cybersecurity. So how do small and medium businesses adjust to what they need to do cybersecurity-wise when they don't have the resources of a Fortune 500 company? Yeah, I think when you, you think about the evolution to the cloud and uh, one of the things that you get as a benefit, generally speaking, when you use cloud services is that typically the suppliers of the cloud bring some security capabilities along the way. So uh, one of the advantages is not simply just economic related to using cloud services for a small company is that you're getting the benefit you know, be it Salesforce or Amazon or Azure, any one of these different types of providers, uh, they bring a, a certain set of security capabilities uh, along with that. That being said, in the security domain, the, you know, the threat landscape shifts constantly. So as we move to the cloud, we're finding different types of actors, different ways that you can get compromised. And you know, I think for most small companies, just given the sheer lack of security talent and technical capability that they're they're going to look at getting outside help they're going to look at outsourcing in some way whether it's a managed service provider or uh, any one of a number of different companies that provide that and ultimately i think for most smaller companies they're they're going to look to get that expertise outside so how do small medium businesses balance what they um, have to do when it comes to signing up a stock as a service I imagine they don't just hand it all off and sort of see what can get done yeah it goes a little bit too when you when we talk about SOC as a service, it's probably worth, you know, 15 seconds of just describing what that means. Uh, basically, in the security world, you buy things to protect yourself from getting attacked. Uh, uh, you buy firewalls and thing, antivirus and endpoint capabilities, all these kind of acronyms that the, our industry throws out, and you buy a lot of those sorts of things. Here's kind of the, the weird reality is you buy all that. And then what you have to proceed to do is monitor everything that's in your infrastructure for when that fails you. So the typical thing is you can't buy enough protection to stop yourself from getting hacked in some way. Now, the, the good thing is if you do that monitoring properly, then you can remediate or you can fix the problems in a timely way where you get no real damage. So um, it's much like having, you know, a neighborhood watch at your, your local area, which is, yeah, you have locks in your doors and on your windows and you do that, but you've got somebody walking around the neighborhood and if somebody sees something going on, they, they go deal with that before you get a real problem. And in our particular world, what we do is uh, we're that security guard for that IT infrastructure. We're protecting and collecting the data, identifying the problems, and then we'll point the organization to the things they need to do to fix it. So their job is going to be, one, you got to give us the data so that we can see what's going on. And then two, when we say fix it, you got to go fix it. You would think that would be straightforward, but for a lot of companies, they, they get a lot of issues and sometimes they just choose not to fix it. And then that can ultimately lead to a much worse situation. But their real job is generally going in and just dealing with the problems as we've identified them so that they don't get a serious breach. Yeah, let's uh, dive in a little bit more to how you interact with uh, your customers. What is the concentration from your product perspective? Is it endpoint protection, threat detection, event notices, uh, a little mix of everything there? Talk to me a little bit more about you know the, the back and forth that you see with your customers. Sure, it's kind of the, of the list that you said is kind of yes and yes and yes and yes. Okay. So uh, 
as you think about what how you're going to monitor an infrastructure, you want to do that. You want to look at the network devices. You want to look at the servers. You want to look at the uh, the endpoints, and every one of those points represents a way of understanding what's going on in that environment. And so our, our typical engagement is we want to collect all that data. We're going to do all the work to marry that from the, the, the variety of different kind of threat intelligence that you put together. And then we, we boil that down. It's a massive boil down. So you're taking like tens, hundreds of thousands of things that potentially might be issues, and you're turning that into the one or two things that you need to take care of. Typically, and this depends on how serious the issue is, if it's a minor issue, we're going to send the customer a trouble ticket. We're going to say, here's something you need to fix. Uh, what we also do on top of that is we're going to monitor to make sure you actually deal with that trouble ticket, which is oftentimes a common failure. You get the ticket, just like email, you've got deluge with emails, you're deluge with tickets. We want to make sure that you actually fix that particular issue. If it's more serious, probably call you on the phone. If it's really serious, we might call three or four people on the phone <laughs> and, and get something going on. Because you, you may be, you know, maybe something as simple as uh, you've got adware on, you know, an admin's laptop that's no real risk, but you need to deal with it. To you've got, you know, a malware breakout that's going to bring down your entire infrastructure and how you respond will reflect kind of what is the challenge. Uh, but the part I think that, that makes what we're doing unique is the persistence beyond just telling you about it, then making sure that you fixed it, and then on top of that, validating that you fixed it appropriately. Because very often, if somebody hacks into your network, they break into it, they leave little tidbits all over the place. So they think you fixed one thing, it turns out, well, you fixed that, but they left a little bit over there, and you got to make sure all those things get uh, dealt with, or you're not really dealing with the issue. With that validation part, what happens when a customer turns around after you alerted them to something and they go, well, that's nice, I don't know how to fix this, could you help me fix this? We don't, we, generally we don't do that. Okay. Uh, now, we, um, we're a company, we're 100% channel, so we work with a lot of partners. Okay. Almost all of our partners provide those kind of uh, on-premise services. So the re-image a laptop, uh, restore something from backup, or uh, go in and run a malware removal tool. There's a variety of different things that you might do in that environment. And a big part of us cooperating with the channel is that they get to sell value-added services on top of what we do. They're not simply a pass-through seller of what we're doing. So they, they have to do it, or they typically get a partner, or partners that will go do those sorts of things. There's not a lot you can do. I mean, generally speaking, if you get a breach, you're gonna do one of three things. You're gonna change a configuration. You're gonna go do something on your firewall, or you're gonna go do something in, in your environment to make sure you don't get attacked in that way. You're gonna run a malware removal tool, or you're gonna restore from backup. Like the, it's kind of like you, you think about it when you do it. It's one of those three things. And uh, you generally, that's why a good backup strategy is obviously one of the biggest things that a company can do to, to really survive and be resilient in, in the hacker domain. Because sooner or later, we're all going to need to restore from backup. And it used to be we had to restore from backup because disk would fail. That's no longer the reason for restoring from backup. The backup industry is driven off of cybersecurity anymore. It's not driven off of disk failure. Um, and that's the, the most common way that people are going to get deal with it. So do you go in also and, and sort of recommend all the solutions they should have? Because I just, I hear over and over again about all the noise in the market and everything seems to overlap. Um, and you, know, you walk through RSA and there's like five, 10, 50 companies that appear to be doing kind of the same thing, but maybe pitch it a little bit differently. Yeah, I, I'm sympathetic to, to organizations. I walk the trade show floors and I consider myself relatively literate and even I don't know exactly what everybody does so it's one of those things there is a lot of noise and a lot of confusion um, we don't 
recommend vendors, um, but we will recommend um, things they should be doing in their network. And actually, generally speaking, most companies, I, I almost consider it basic hygiene. So one of the, uh, when you think about what we're about, um, most companies are about providing some technical innovation that they do, that they do either it's brand new or they do it way better or they do it in that environment. We're not that, we're, we're actually slightly different. And one of my um, investors described us Companies come in two types. Generally, most companies are what they call physics hard. They do some technical innovation. We're what we call um, diet hard. Like, we all know we need to eat right, exercise, and do it. None of us can do it. We all struggle with it, right? It's like a thing, because it never goes away. It's a persistence. And so our business is a lot about that kind of persistence um, uh, built into the environment. So most of the things that we're recommending to customers is the very basic things, appropriate patching, appropriate segmentation in their environment, all these kinds of things they should be doing. And and frankly, most vendors probably don't need, the, or most companies don't need to go buy more stuff. It's That's generally they would improve their posture by just simply taking what they've got and configuring it appropriately and then setting up their network appropriately. That occasionally happens. We'll go in and say, if a company doesn't have web filtering or they don't have spam control or they don't have endpoint protection, we're like, eh, maybe you ought to consider that. Any one of these four or five vendors would be acceptable. If you configure them appropriately, most of the vendors uh, in this space do things pretty well. And it's kind of the weird corner cases you might run into that you need a specific vendor. We do... As an exception, uh, we as a corporation do not recommend products, but we do allow our uh, concierge security engineers because each of our customers has a special relationship with a, a specific team that they deal with. And we will allow the, our security engineers to express an opinion. So if they like a particular firewall, they recommend a, a, a solution, well, that's okay. It's not corporately endorsed, but there's a, there's a special relationship that comes to, uh, really comes about as the result of the way we deliver our service where each customer really, they think about Arctic Wolf, but they actually probably more think about their concierge security engineer and that relationship. And that, that gets to be a fairly intimate relationship. And so we allow for that. Um, and we have differences of opinion. Our security engineers argue about whether it's this firewall or that firewall, or this endpoint or that endpoint solution. Uh, but in the end, honestly, for most customers, if they just used what they had appropriately, they would dramatically improve their infrastructure. They, in most cases, don't need to spend more money. So what among the basic cyber hygiene principles do you find that companies struggle with the most of the things, that, whether it is just regular patching, endpoint protection, segmentation? Like, What do you find that companies are just having a hard time with even on a basic level? Uh, patching, patching remains the biggest issue, I think, for most companies. I would say the good majority have some sort of backup strategy. They probably haven't tested it, and it's as thoroughly as they should, so sometimes they can find themselves in a corner case where they thought they had a good backup strategy, and then when they come to live it, it turns out they don't. Um, uh, but I would say, you know, backup strategy, good segmentation, um, and, you know, I would say past that, uh, really good controls around who has administrative rights. So, okay. like, when you think about uh, inside the organization, so it, if I get inside and I hack, um, you know, the receptionist desk and the network is segmented, I'm not going to get to anything. Like, yeah, okay, that laptop's compromised, but I, my, my consequence of that are, are not great. But if they've got a flat network where if I compromise that particular person's laptop and I can go right to the server that's got all the crown jewels on it, that's a problem. Uh, but so you want the segmentation, but on top of that, you also want to not, and we see this fairly often, um, 
is you see a lot of people with administrative rights, and that's some other load. When a hacker gets into your network, they they don't want they don't want this person or that. They want the the admins, and the IT admins are like you know the the secret pot of gold at the end of the rainbow right. where they can because they can get those IT admin rights, they can roam the corporation, do what they want, uh, and almost all the really serious breaches. Um, uh, tended to be around people that got admin rights or they put a capturing tool on a flow where they could pick up data. Like if you think back to the old target breach, it was this, they put ma you know, malware on the endpoint terminals and they just collected credit cards. Um, they didn't care. They didn't care if they got to the server. They said, well, I'm just, over time, if they don't catch me, I'll just capture enough credit cards. Right. I can do whatever I want. But most times the hackers are trying to get to those IT admins. I saw a quote once um, from the uh, head of the NSA and they highlighted that, that most hacking attempts kind of fall into two domains. One is we're using classic kind of con man techniques to get you to supply credentials so I can get past your preliminary perimeter security. And then from that, what I want to do is then get to the IT person and get their admin. Because if I can do that, now I can do whatever I want. Is that the most surprising um, thing you've seen a company do is sort of just let random employees have admin rights because they wanted to install like a home printer or something? Yeah, a lot of companies, you know, they uh, they don't have a discipline about cleaning up who has what rights. So we've seen situations where employees that haven't been there for many years still have an account with admin rights. Uh, and and so, you know, there's, there's sloppiness about well, when people get terminated. Now, we all look at that and kind of seem shocked as we should be, right? But at the same time... If you don't have a really good policy about when an employee leaves, that you how you go clean up all their accounts, not a lot of people do. It's kind of surprising. And so, or I needed admin rights because I'm doing a project, and so I give you admin rights and I forget about it. Yeah, I give you admin rights to all the routers, and and I should have taken that away when you finished the project. Ah, but I forgot about it. There's the, one of the, the the hard things about security that makes it very different than networking and applications. Almost always, when I'm deploying infrastructure related to networks or applications, I can tell when it doesn't work. Like I, I go to my browser, or I go to my thing and the spinning globe and I, I can't get right. to it. So nothing, nothing happens with security. Uh, the absence of something can be the actual problem. I'll, I'll have no indication. So I could have a perfectly secure network. I go type one command on my firewall and I'm open to the public internet. And nobody will know. Like, the, how do you know that? Nothing happens. Nothing immediately goes awry in that right. kind of model. So it's one of those things where... Uh, you know, it's security, and that's why you need that continuous monitoring, looking and doing it, because there's no way to tell it other than by really looking through and, and knowing what's taking place uh, for that particular environment that you're running. So you talked a little bit about your concierge security product, and I would love to hear a little bit more about what that setup uh, looks like. Like, how many people are assigned to customers? They, do they all get their individual quote-unquote socks? Or is it more like a dashboard focus for whoever is responsible for security at uh, the, the organization that has procured your services? So when we started, when we, when we founded the company, we started with a belief that the security engineer um, is the center of uh, our service and our capability. And when we actually originally had it, we had no portal. We had no way for the customers to look at their data, no way for them to see anything. The interface was the security engineer. So they would get a ticket or they'd make a phone call and that was the engagement. That, that capability, now we've obviously added portals and dashboards and things like that for people to look at. Uh, but in general, um, the engagement is through the concierge security engineer. They're the, they, uh, 
do a couple things. One, they're looking at the customer's network. They're seeing what's going on. They escalate issues for them. Any inbound questions from the customer, they're dealing with those sorts of things and uh, responding to it. But more importantly, they interpret because securities, you know how it is, acronym-laden environment. There's you know, TLA is everywhere. I have to use right. an acronym, describe an acronym, right? Yeah. But it, you know, is, is, and so a big part of our, our concierge security engineers is communicating, engaging each customer at the level of what they, you know, what they require. So they, maybe they're not very security literate. So great, we'll engage them in that manner. Maybe we're dealing with a security expert and they want a lot of data that goes with it. So the concierge security model, one is that by developing an intimacy with the customer, they can then engage them and they, they can leverage the overall capabilities of what we do as a company, but we still very much depend on that security engineer. So it's not real. I wouldn't say dashboard based. I would say it's really around that concierge security engineer. What we have is obviously um, some number of customers mapped to a dedicated um, uh, person, a team, and actually in our particular case, a pair uh, that we call the concierge security team. And um, they, that relationship stays. So that's the one they deal with. Now, those people can't work 24 hours a day, so we have ways that we share the workload and the off hours and do things. But in the end, the concierge security engineer, the, that team engages and owns that relationship with the account. And that's, that's a big part of what we do because then it allows us to customize the service and make it specific to what you care about. And everybody's a little different. We're all, all unique in our own special way. And that applies to the corporations as well on the security side. Sarah, you, you mentioned before about sort of how you handle the incident, but just walk us through it, um, what happens when there's a security event. So typically, we're getting a flood of data. You know, like you draw a visual, it's just log data pouring in from everywhere. Uh, we're curating that data. We, ultimately, something comes down to, and we get, we internally, we get something what we call an investigation. So okay. uh, this is the machine learning, the artificial intelligence capabilities of our infrastructure have flagged a set of things as saying, this requires a human to look at it. Like, we think this might be a problem. Well, even as good as we do that, we still get 99% noise. Now, it's way reduced from the other noise you would normally get. That human, person, the concierge security team, they look through it, they qualify it. Ultimately, they'll, they'll reach a conclusion, this is real or it's a false positive. If it's real, uh, again, depending on how serious it is, it may just be a simple ticket. It may go into a summary report they can deal with in a week or two. Or no, if it's an emergency, we're going to escalate that immediately to the, the customer. Uh, and so that security engineer is really responsible for then escalating that. And a part of the service is escalating it with the appropriate detail to what that customer needs to remediate that or fix that particular issue. For a security literate organization or one that's particularly paranoid, they want a lot of data. If it's hmm. uh, you know one that just wants to keep things, the lights on, they're like, just tell me what I gotta do. So like, you, you've got a compromised machine, it's severely compromised, you need to re-image or you need to re-image or restore from backup. Eh, it's lightly compromised. You can go run a malware removal tool and we'll validate that you fixed it. So our engagement model is really dependent on what the customer dictates and what their interest is, coupled with how serious is this problem. Um, and that's the way we work with it. That concierge security engineer really remains the center of that, that model and that engagement. Uh, we also get a lot of inbound. So it's not simply that we get uh, things that we find. Uh, I'd say fairly often, People are riding in from work and they hear on CNN or the BBC or the NPR and it's like such and such hospital outbreak, you know, on this, there's this new type of malware and virus, what are they going to do? And they'll call us up 
uh, I think okay. probably one of the bigger ones we had a couple of years ago when Juniper had that back door. I don't know if right. you guys remember, remember this that. on their routers. And so we went out uh, and proactively went through all of our customer base. Uh, as soon as we saw that notification, it turned out almost everybody, it was a false positive. They had Juniper routers, but they were not configured in a way that they would be exposed. Okay. And we had two. So we called them up on the phone. It's like, you're exposed in a major way. And they brought a crisis team and they made the changes to get themselves configured uh, in that environment. And then because we knew there was gonna be a lot of noise with it, we actually preempted all of our other customers and say, you don't have the issue. We don't normally do that. Normally they, we view that as noise. But in this particular case, this was uh, noise because it, it, it allowed them to know, okay, you're safe. Um, a lot of times uh, the IT people we deal with get requests from their board, from their CEO, from a compliance officer, from an auditor. They're going through some particular certification they need to deal with and we get inbound requests. Because we live in and curate the data, the security engineers, they can typically answer most questions that for a lot of organizations might take a week or more of work. Well, I gotta go find the logs, I gotta go do the work, I gotta do the analysis, present the report. And now what they do is just send us a note, we'll write up the report, send it back to them, say here you go, here's the answer, you're good. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, you talked about uh, hospitals there, and, and how does this work with regulated industries and the relationship that you've had there? I mean, whether it's a smaller healthcare firm or like a, uh, a credit union, which are generally on the smaller side, how do you fit your product into their compliance needs? So I'd say even, you know, non-regulated industries are increasingly getting subjected to uh, whether it's you know GDPR and the European privacy laws now there's California and New York that have state privacy laws so right. if you're a corporation in those states it doesn't matter whether you're healthcare or finance you've got issues you have to deal with in particular I think the added requirement is you have an audit requirement and it turns out if you go through each of the kind of uh, particular regulatory things whether it's FINRA for finance or HIPAA for healthcare or go down the list of uh, all the again, acronyms that you might see at the base, they're all asking for the same thing. They want you to collect data, they want you to monitor things, they want you to notify them if you see a breach uh, in that environment. And so a big part, of, we do that kind of independent of that. We're aware, we've done our, a lot of our own certifications. And so, uh, but we also support the customers when they go through an audit or when they have a compliance requirement, we're a checkbox. Almost every certification requires them to be doing continuous monitoring. And so we check that box form and we check several other boxes normally as part of that. But in addition, since we've got the data, uh, a lot of times the auditors will come in and they're going through a HIPAA audit, say a little local healthcare outfit, and, and they're like, well, we want you to tell us the AD failures from last November the 19th, you know, for uh, 2 to 5 a.m. And, you know, and that, you can imagine a customer, they're like, well, I don't know where that log data <laughs> yeah, is right. and where it's got. For us, it's like type a command, boom, boom, shoot them a PDF and boom, they're done. Uh, so we support those audit requirements because we're curating living in the data. And that's typically the one extra piece that we might see is that an auditor uh, might be interested in something um, and that we can then supply an answer for them. And it raises the confidence level that somebody's actually watching the network and, and really monitoring what's taking place. Great. So Brian, we end every interview on Securiosity with a random question. <laughs> question for you is if you could pick a musical instrument to be a virtuoso, at any instrument out there, what would you pick? Oh, I, I'm almost certain uh, it would probably be the guitar if I could, uh, okay. just because you can play it anywhere. Okay. I would like to do the piano, but I, I choose that because I couldn't play it anywhere. I'd like to be able to carry it. And I've always wanted to be able to uh, sit at a campfire somewhere and pull out the guitar. You know, uh, I, I think that would be uh, pretty amazing. I did a couple years of guitar lessons and then 
I got too busy with work and that, that fell there. off. But. Been there. I feel like we've all done that at some point. Yeah, but I, I probably picked the guitar. Great. Yeah. Great. Brian, really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Brian for joining us and Jen. It is that time of the year. Heading out to Vegas for Vegas. Black Hat and DEF CON. Yeah. What are you looking forward to? Well, I'm hosting um, a happy hour um, Wednesday night at 5 p.m. at Kumi Lounge in Mandalay Bay. Please stop in. Have a drink on me. Um, uh, looking forward to something by DEF CON. Um, I'm also looking forward to um, AGC Partners, which is an investment bank, puts on an event called Disruption. Um, gets together okay. all of the venture capitalists in the cyberspace, um, plus a lot of companies raising money in the space. Um, and that's always a fun time. Very, very cool. Yeah. How about you? I have a extremely full dance card uh, for the time that I'm going to be there. Having a ton of conversations uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with my work on CyberScoop, I'm, I'm going to be filming videos from the expo floor during the week. We're going to be taping a bunch of interviews yeah. while we're out there. I'm looking forward to that. Um, but just looking to catching up and having everybody uh, give us some security scoops. I would imagine that Capital One will be the pervasive uh, conversation piece out there. But Hey, uh, we're open to hearing about any and all scoops. And if you're out there, come and find us. Uh, we'd love to talk to you guys. Absolutely. Wednesday all night, right. Kumi Lounge, 5 yeah. o'clock. Let's go do it. All right. And until we see you out there in Vegas, everybody, stay curious. Stay curious.